This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. Today's episode was a listener suggestion, and it highlights the bystander effect, or bystander apathy, as it's also been called. The bystander effect occurs when the presence of others discourages an individual from intervening when presented with bullying or violence. In fact, the greater the number of bystanders, the less likely it is for a bystander to provide assistance to the person or persons in distress. People are more likely to take action in a crisis when there are fewer or even no other witnesses around. But today's case highlights both the bystander effect and the violent contagion that can occur with mob mentality. Mob mentality has occurred throughout human history and describes how the larger the group, the more magnified the violence may become. In short, things that we may never do individually, we may become capable of doing as part of a mob or a small group. Now, once again, before we go on, we want to warn you that today's case depicts some of the most horrific violence and torture that humans can do to one another. This case is especially shocking because the victim was just 12 years old and her attackers ranged in age from 15 to 17 years old. Shanta Scherer was born in 1979 in Pineville, Kentucky to Stephen Scherer and Jacqueline Vaunt Scherer. Shanta grew up in a loving home with two parents who adored Shanta and her older sister. Despite the couple divorcing and Jacqueline soon remarrying, Shanta remained close to both of her parents. Eventually, Shanda's mother remarried and divorced one more time, causing her to move Shanda to New Albany, Indiana. While in Indiana, bubbly and outgoing Shanda attended Hazelwood Middle School, where she made friends easily. However, when she met 15-year-old Amanda Heverin, they didn't click right away. In fact, they clashed so hard that they both wound up in detention together for fighting with each other. It was at detention that the two decided to call a truce, and soon they became close friends. Despite the age difference, their friendship turned romantic, and the two began trading love letters and began secretly dating. It would be their behavior at a middle school dance that would set in motion a series of events that would ultimately end in tragedy. 
While at the dance, their behavior caught the attention of Amanda's ex-girlfriend, Melinda Loveless. Melinda and Amanda had dated over a year, and it was clear that Melinda felt the relationship was not over yet. She confronted Shanda at the dance, threatening to harm and kill her if she didn't stay away from Amanda. Shanda's mother found some of the love letters written by Amanda where she discussed sexually explicit topics with her younger daughter. The content of the letters coupled with the age difference worried Jacqueline. She believed Amanda was a predator and didn't want her exposing Shanda to inappropriate sexual behavior at just 12 years old. To Jacqueline, Amanda appeared hardened, advanced, and sexually aggressive compared to the young and naive Shanda. When she discovered that Shanda was being threatened by a friend of Amanda's, she immediately pulled her out of Hazelwood Middle School and moved her to Our Lady at Perpetual Help Catholic School in order to protect her. As a mother, Jacqueline Vaught did everything right. She reported the threats to the school, and then she moved her daughter to a safer school. However, it would turn out to be inefficient to prevent the horrifying events that would soon unfold. Before we get to that night that ended Shanda Sharer's life, we are going to discuss the girls who were responsible for this tragedy. We are going to start with the ringleader, Melinda Loveless. Shanda's mother described Melinda as, quote, the closest thing you will ever look at and know what the devil is. Her eyes are empty. There is nothing inside her, end quote. While there is likely a reason why Melinda had soulless, empty eyes, there is absolutely no excuse for the acts she perpetrated onto a 12-year-old child based on her own age, hatred, and jealousy. Many people endure the kinds of abuse that Melinda endured, and it doesn't result in them acting out their rage in such a depraved manner. Melinda Loveless was born in New Albany, Indiana on October 28, 1975 to Margie and Larry Loveless. Melinda was the youngest of the three girls who objectively grew up in a violent and dysfunctional home. Margie would later describe her husband, who abused her in every way possible, as a sexual deviant. She was disgusted when she discovered her husband's interest in wearing both her and her daughter's makeup and underwear. But it was his frequent cheating she found most objectionable of all. Unfortunately, what she first found distasteful in her marriage would soon pale in comparison to the sexual demands he would make upon her. A few years into their marriage, he began demanding that Margie have sex with both men and women of his choosing. At first, Margie refused to participate, which angered Larry. Eventually, she gave into his demands to avoid his violent outburst. Margie worked as a nurse while Larry struggled to hang on to employment. He worked many jobs throughout their marriage, including one as a new Albany police probation officer. And he was fired from that job just eight months later after assaulting a co-worker who he accused of sleeping with his wife. Which is ironic considering he would frequently coerce his co-workers into having sex with his wife Margie while he sat in a corner and watched her debasement. Larry also worked as a postal carrier for a time, but lost that job too. Margie was the primary breadwinner for the family, often working long hours and double shifts. And as a result, she would often go days without seeing her family. This meant that children would spend very long days and nights with Larry, who was an insufficient caregiver. Family members reported that the loveless children would often go hungry due to lack of food in the house. 
And to make matters worse, Margie suffered from chronic depression and made several suicide attempts throughout her marriage to Larry. When Melinda was just five years old, Margie and Larry joined the Graceland Baptist Church. This caused Larry to stop drinking for a period of time, and the family experienced normalcy for the first time in a very long time. Eventually, Larry became a lay preacher, where he would conduct healing ceremonies and receive direct revelations from God. One revelation he received was about his daughter, Melinda. God told Larry that she was possessed by the devil and required an exorcism. He allowed a church elder he knew from the church to take Melinda to a hotel room where he performed the exorcism ritual. According to the elder, it took hours and hours to remove the demons from Melinda's body. Many family members agreed that after Melinda's exorcism, she was never the same again. In fact, she was much worse. However, Larry's deep faithfulness eventually led him to his own leadership role in the church, and he began counseling members who were experiencing marital problems. Perhaps Larry had a demon of his own, because soon he became inappropriately propositioning the women he was supposed to offer wisdom and godly counsel. It was during one session where Larry attempted to rape one of the members that he and the church parted ways. Unfortunately for Margie, this meant things were about to get much worse for her again. Without the church to curb his perverse sexual appetites, he quickly fell into old habits of forcing Margie to have sex with strangers. And one night, Larry arranged for a few friends of his to come over and gang rape his wife while he sat in the corner and watched. This led to Margie's next suicide attempt. Their daughter Melinda was just nine years old at this time, and all she knew was that her mother had tried to kill herself again. Melinda began to blame herself for her mother's suicide attempts, wondering if it was because of her that her mother didn't want to stay. Later, when Margie began refusing to have sex with Larry's friends and co-workers, he beat her so severely that she was admitted to the hospital. This finally resulted in Larry being convicted of assault. Unfortunately, Larry didn't confine his abuse to just his wife. He molested all three of his daughters and once tied all three of them up and sexually assaulted all of them before letting them go. In addition to his own children, Larry also sexually assaulted Melinda's cousins and other family members too. Larry demanded that Melinda sleep in the same bed with him on nights where Margie worked. The final straw for Margie happened in November of 1990. Melinda was just 14 years old at the time and had confided in her mother that she was a lesbian. At first, Margie was angry, but later came to terms with it. While Margie was making dinner, she noticed that Larry kept peeking in on Melinda and her girlfriend while they were undressing. Enraged, Margie grabbed a kitchen knife and attacked Larry, who defensively raised his arm. The girls were terrified by the attack in the blood and called the police, which resulted in one last suicide attempt for Margie. This time when Margie returned from the hospital, she was all alone. Larry had decided to divorce Margie and move to Florida, leaving behind a ticking time bomb by the name of Melinda. Now, we want to note here that Melinda denies that her father ever sexually assaulted her or molested her. However, this contradicts testimony from her two sisters and cousins who witnessed the abuse. It's clear she was confused and troubled by her father's behavior because she was said to be the only one who missed him after he left.
The next member of our teenage girl mob is Lori Tackett. Lori was born on October 5th, 1974, and was raised by her father, George, who was described as a hardworking factory worker. Lori's mother, Peggy Tackett, was described as a frail, unhealthy woman who rarely left the house unless it was to attend church. It would later be alleged that Lori was molested at the age of five and then again at the age of 12 by a close family friend. By all accounts, Lori and Peggy had a contentious relationship due to her mother's rigid religious beliefs. Peggy demanded that Lori only wear modest dresses and behave in a demure manner. And when she discovered that Lori was changing into jeans at school, she became enraged and attacked her daughter. Lori managed to escape and lock herself in her room. In anger, frail Peggy pounded on the door until it opened and then began to strangle Lori. Lori was able to escape to a neighbor's home until Peggy calmed down. The concerned neighbor reported the attack to Child Protective Services, who sent out a social worker to investigate the suitability of the Tackett home. Lori had bruising on her face and neck, which resulted in CPS requiring the family to submit to regular unannounced visits. This likely kept Lori safe, but it didn't stop her from rebelling against her mother's rigid Pentecostal Christian faith. The Pentecostal church required modest dress, no cutting of hair for girls, and absolutely no makeup or worldly adornments. Once Lori knew that CPS was going to keep her mother in line, she rebelled even further by cutting her hair into a short pixie cut. And she began openly wearing heavy black eyeliner, dark purple lipstick, and dressed in what her mother considered to be a scandalous fashion, including the wearing of jeans. Lori also grew fascinated by witchcraft and the occult. She studied the power of stones, crystals, and spells. Peggy became convinced her daughter was possessed by a demon and told Lori that she could see demons floating around her head. Peggy didn't believe in modern medicine and thought psychiatrists were liars and frauds, but she knew that Lori needed help, so she asked a high-ranking member of her church to come over and talk to Lori and save her soul. Now, this talk had the opposite effect. Lori's grades were rapidly falling, and she had to repeat the seventh grade. She became even more antisocial and withdrew from her family, spending hours alone or staring off into space. When her parents discovered that Lori was engaging in self-harm, they reluctantly admitted her into the King's Daughter Hospital for a mental health evaluation. Lori had begun hanging out with other cutters and cut herself so deeply that she sliced through one of her tendons in her arm, leaving a four-inch-long gaping wound, and it required a four-hour surgery to repair the damage. After the incident, Lori was prescribed antidepressants, but it didn't seem to help. She was again admitted for a mental health evaluation, this time to Jefferson Hospital. Once there, she confided in doctors that she had been experiencing auditory and visual hallucinations since she was six or seven years old. She was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and dropped out of school. It was at this time that Lori ran away to Louisville, where she eventually met Melinda, and the two became close friends. Her father, George, eventually found and lured Lori back home by buying her a car. Besides Melinda, Lori only had one other close friend, and that was Hope Rippy. Hope was like a little sister to Lori, and the only person she really felt was trustworthy. The youngest of four kids, Hope was seven years old when her parents were divorced. Admittedly, Hope didn't handle the divorce very well. 
In an attempt to heal their fractured family, the parents Carl and Gloria reunited and Hope's behaviors began to improve. She was in the school band, enjoyed musical theater, and eventually ran track and played basketball. She had respectable grades and was well-behaved until her friendship with Lori began. Carl disapproved of Lori, but understood that his daughter remained friends with her out of caring and loyalty. Carl was worried, but ultimately trusted his daughter and believed she would make the right decisions. He even took the two shopping and bought them a Ouija board. Naturally, this upset Lori's mom, who saw it as an invitation to the devil, and she had demanded that Carl burn the Ouija board, which he did, even though he thought that it was harmless and Peggy was ridiculous. He also compiled with Peggy's request to allow someone from her church into Carl's home to exercise it from any demons the girls may have accidentally unleashed. The fourth member of her mob would be the only one in the group to suffer from remorse and be paralyzed by the bystander effect. 15-year-old Tony Lawrence was born to parents Glenda and Clifton Lawrence, who spoiled their daughter, letting her get away with anything. Tony was smart and intellectual and had big plans for a bright future that included going to college. She wanted to pursue writing and enjoyed poetry and drawing. Despite growing up in a warm and loving environment, Tony's life changed when she was 14 years old and was raped by a teenage boy. Tony repressed her assault and only later wrote a note about the incident she confided in a friend. Tony's mom found this note and they took their daughter to the police station to report the assault. Because of the passage of time, there were no repercussions for the boy other than being told that he had to stay at least 50 feet away from Tony at all times. And then when news of the assault traveled to school, Tony was ruthlessly bullied and called names like a liar and a slut. Naturally, this took a terrible toll on Tony, which caused her to seek out means of self-medication. She began smoking marijuana and heavily drinking. Despite only being in eighth grade, she also began engaging in risky and harmful behavior by having unprotected sex with multiple older men. Like the other girls in her group, she also began cutting herself as a way to release her pain and anxiety. By contrast, Shanda grew up very differently from her eventual murderers. She was described as happy, bubbly, and with the desire to help others. She looked up to her older sister, who was a nurse and had plans to follow in her footsteps. Despite having divorced parents, Shanda had a solid upbringing and a strong foundation filled with love and acceptance by both of her parents. Shanda loved to spend time with her friends and go to the mall and talk on the phone. Her goals in life included giving back to others. For Shanda, the night of January 10th, 1992 was no different than many other winter nights she spent with her family. That night, she was staying with her father when three of Amanda's close friends came over to see her. Those three girls were Tony, Hope, and Lori. They had been driving around looking for something to do when their friend Melinda had a fun idea. She wanted to scare Shanda out of seeing Amanda. She told the girls that Shanda was a copycat and had stolen her girlfriend and she wanted to, quote, mess with her and scare her, end quote. Melinda had Shanda's address and phone number, so the girls decided to drive over to her house. Melinda wanted to trick her into getting into the car so that she could teach her a lesson. Melinda knew that Shanda wouldn't get into the car if she knew that she was there, so she hid in the back under a blanket with a knife. 
With their plan in place, the girls went to Shanda's house with their story that they wanted to take her to see Amanda. She told them that her father was home and she couldn't leave just then, but they should come back after midnight and she promised she would sneak out and go with them. She was probably incredibly excited to get to spend some time with Amanda. Despite only having a learner's permit, Hope drove Melinda's car that night so Melinda could easily conceal herself in the back seat. They returned to Shanda's house at 12.30 a.m., just as they promised. As Hope and Lori went up to the house, they were greeted by an eager Shanda who was running towards them. Shanda jumped into the car and got into the front seat between Hope and Lori. As soon as they began driving, Melinda threw off the blanket and grabbed Shanda, holding the knife against her throat. She wanted Shanda to be terrified, and it was working. She enjoyed the panic, fear, crying, and promises from Shanda to leave Amanda alone. The girls drove to a hangout place called Witch's Castle. It was an old, abandoned home that came with a legendary story that it belonged to nine witches who controlled the town for hundreds of years. During the entire drive there, Melinda kept the knife closely held at Shanda's throat, even scraping at the skin of her neck when going over unexpected bumps in the road. When they finally arrived at their destination, Tony spontaneously hugged Shanda, looked her into her eyes, and told her that she was really sorry. The other girls weren't feeling sorry at all. In fact, they were excited by the violence to come. Lori had a rope she used to secure Shanda's ankles together while Melinda bound her wrists together. The girls heard the sound of cars driving by from the roadway and began to worry that someone else might come by and stop their night of fun and terror. So they stuffed Shanda into the trunk of the car and drove an hour away to a remote trash dump site where they would have some privacy. When they finally arrived, the girls dragged Shanda from the trunk and stripped her naked. Melinda, Lori, and Hope all began taking turns punching and kicking Shanda until she was covered in bruises and in the fetal position. With Shanda on the ground, one of the girls grabbed the window cleaner out of the car and began spraying it on Shanda's open cuts and bruises to make them burn. They took the remainder of the cleaning fluid and poured it into Shanda's eyes, hoping to blind her. For hours and hours, they tortured her in unimaginable ways. All of the while, Tony sat in the car, listening to Shanda's pleas and cries for help while doing nothing. When they were all done, Melinda took her dull knife and tried to cut Shanda's throat to keep her quiet. But the knife wasn't sharp enough, so she began stabbing it into Shanda's throat. When it refused to penetrate deep enough, Melinda stepped on the handle, hoping to drive it further into Shanda's throat. That was when Tony had had enough. She wanted Shanda's suffering to end, so she got out of the car and held Shanda's legs down, while Melinda repeatedly tried to saw the dull blade through her throat. Frustrated, she tried to stab Shanda in the back of her head, hoping to sever her spinal column. Again, Shanda refused to die. Next, the girls took turns sexually assaulting Shanda with objects. Lori even tried to strangle Shanda to death with her bare hands, trying to finally end her life. It takes an incredible amount of strength to manually strangle someone. Undeterred, Lori wrapped a rope around Shanda's neck and began to tighten it until Shanda finally lost consciousness. 
Believing that they had killed her, the girls wrapped her up in the same blanket that Melinda had hidden herself behind earlier and threw her seemingly lifeless body back into the trunk. The girls headed to Lori's house so they could wash Shanda's blood off their bodies and change into clean clothes. As they arrived at Lori's house, they heard screaming coming from the trunk. Lori grabbed a small knife from her kitchen, opened the trunk, and began stabbing Shanda over and over again in a frenzy. Once again, she was covered in blood, believing Shanda was finally dead. Melinda and Lori were still hyped up on adrenaline from the kill and wanted to go for a ride. Tony and Hope opted to stay behind. More than likely, the two most vicious aggressors wanted to dispose of Shanda's body. As they were deciding where to dump her body, they heard Shanda screaming once again from the trunk. They stopped the car, and Lori grabbed a tire iron and started beating Shanda, trying to crush her skull. Once she was sure Shanda was once again dead, she placed the bloody tool on the dashboard of the car. They drove back to Lori's house and decided to pick up both of the girls to help them dispose of Shanda's body. Next, they drove to the gas station where they bought gas and a two-liter bottle of Pepsi. Lori dumped the contents and filled the bottle with gasoline. Under the presumption that Shanda was dead, they drove out to the country and stopped at a cornfield. Lori, Melinda, and Hope carried Shanda, placing her on the same blanket they wrapped her in earlier. Knowing what was coming and unable to watch, Tony went back to the car and tried to lay down in the back seat. Shockingly, Shanda had survived the night of torture, and as the girls gathered around her, they heard her whisper, Mommy, over and over again. No doubt in a desperate hope to be saved by the person who spent a lifetime protecting her from pain and suffering. Once again, the girls withheld mercy. Melinda began removing trash from the car and placed it around Shanda's body, hoping to use it as kindling. They took the Pepsi bottle filled with gasoline and doused Shanda's body with it. They struck a match, turning Shanda into a human campfire they hoped would burn away all the evidence of their sins and depravity. Once they were convinced that Shanda was truly dead, they doused her body one more time and set her on fire again until she was unrecognizable. Apparently, they worked up an appetite and ended their long night at McDonald's for some breakfast. As they sat and ate, they reminisced over the evening's events and laughed and mocked Shanda for refusing to die, all sure that she deserved their death sentence for the crime of dating a girl that Melinda believed belonged to her. After eating, they all went back to Lori's house to hose out the trunk and clean the blood-soaked interior covered in Shanda's bloody handprints. Later that day, Melinda called Amanda and laughingly told her what she had done to Shanda. However, Amanda would later allege that she kept the story to herself because she didn't believe it. Now, around 4.30 in the morning, Steve Scherer noticed that Shanda was missing from her room. And this wasn't like her to sneak out, so he became worried immediately. He began calling her friends, hoping that one of them had heard from her. Next, he called Shanda's mom and told her that their daughter was missing. She came home right away, and together they contacted the police to report Shanda missing. 
They provided them with a description of her clothing, and then the two of them began searching for their daughter on their own. Unfortunately, they wouldn't need to search for long. That same morning, two avid bird hunters and brothers drove to their preferred hunting site. Once they arrived, they noticed a pile of rags that were still smoldering from a recent fire. And as they got closer, they thought they saw a mannequin coming out of the burning embers. But it didn't look quite right, so they continued their approach. Finally, their minds registered what they were really seeing was a dead body. It was definitely human, and it looked burnt beyond recognition. The body had been posed with the legs spread open and naked except for a pair of blue underwear, which were soaked in blood. The brothers left immediately, heading to the closest phone. At 10.55 a.m., they called the police, who immediately suspected it was missing 12-year-old Shanda Scherer. Shanda's hands were frozen in a clenched position without any skin to check for fingerprints. However, they did recover tire prints and an empty two-liter bottle of Pepsi that smelled of gasoline. Despite the lack of forensic evidence, the police were able to identify Shanda from her dental records. However, that was just a formality because the next day they had a confession. Two of the girls, Tony along with Hope, confessed to Hope's mother. Hope's mother, Gloria, called Carl to come home from work, and through tears, once again, the girls told Carl that they were a witness to a murder. They immediately hired a lawyer who told Carl that the police were already looking for the girls. Hope's parents accompanied Tony home and remained present while she made her own confession to her parents. According to the book entitled Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones, Tony's mother passed out and her father first told Tony to get the hell out of this house. After the confessions, the police had to notify Shanda's parents. Her father immediately asked if Shanda had suffered. Out of mercy, the police detective told them that Shanda likely died instantly. Of course, later they would discover all the ways in which their daughter fought to stay alive and suffered in the process. Next, police went to Melinda's house, where they arrested both Melinda and Lori. Before they left, they told Margie to get her daughter a good lawyer. Surprisingly, it was Lori who put on a tough act, definitely refusing to confess. It was Melinda who began shaking like a frightened little girl as she slid down the wall trying to make herself as small as possible. Melinda asked investigators to call her mother, and during the phone call, police heard her say, quote, It was a friend from school named Shanda. Shanda is dead. She's dead. I didn't kill her. I just meant to feel good and beat her up. It went too far. It got out of hand. I punched her in the stomach. Then someone got a knife out. They cut some of her. It was terrible. I didn't mean for this to happen. I'm a good person. I can't talk anymore. I've got to go. Don't feel pity for me. This is my fault. End quote. Now, the autopsy revealed horrific abuse to Shanda, including soot in her throat and lungs, which meant that she was burned alive. There was also tearing and trauma to her vaginal and rectal cavity. After the girls were arrested, the sheriffs showed the four monsters who destroyed their daughter the mercy they withheld from Shanda. Although the girls were being charged as adults, they asked that none of them face the death penalty. Eventually, all four girls took a plea deal. On the day of their sentencing hearing, Steve Scherer addressed the girls first. He said, quote, 
You have no idea the problems you have started in our family as we try to cope with this. It is very hard to understand why you didn't stop this from happening. May you all rot in hell with your murdering friends." End quote. Tony Lawrence was sentenced to 10 years for criminal confinement, plus 10 years for the aggravating circumstances. Hope Rippey signed a plea agreement similar to Lori and Melinda's, where the death penalty would be dropped in exchange for a guilty plea to murder, criminal confinement, and arson. Hope was sentenced to 60 years in prison, but her sentence was unique in that 10 years of that sentence was suspended. And then, a few years later, Steve Scherer drank himself to death. All of Shanda Scherer's attackers are free today. Tony Lawrence was released December 14, 2000, after serving nine years of her 10-year sentence. Hope Rippey was released on April 26, 2006 from Indiana Women's Prison after serving 14 years of her original sentence. Lori Tackett was released from Rockville Correctional Facility on January 11, 2018 after serving 26 years of her original sentence and Melinda Loveless was released from Indiana's Women's Prison on September 19, 2019 after serving 27 years of her original sentence. Through the years, schools and other educational institutions have taught us all that if we see something, we should say something. Schools have placed a heavy emphasis on getting involved in preventing bullying. Perhaps if these programs existed back in 1992, would Shanda Scherer still be with us today? But then again, evil is always around us. And before we end this week's episode, we want to send a special thank you to our listeners and those that support us through Patreon. This week, we welcome Brie, Schneifer, Danielle, Alisa, Gabrielle, Rebecca, Danny, Mia, and Chris. Enjoy the ad-free listens and early access to our weekly episodes. And as always, thank you for listening, and we will be back with more next week.